and welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of The Coriolis Effect. A better world, a world without sin. I'm Dave. And I'm Matthew. And I'm not entirely sure I'm ready for this world without sin. I mean, I know we were quite <laughs> sinful in the last series, but... um. No, I quite like a lot of sin. Um, <laughs> I'm so not sure as being. Do we have to? Ah. Uh, well, I think what we need to do is just pretend it's a world without sin, and behind the scenes we do what we like, and uh, everyone thinks we're really, really, you know. Uh, oh, you mean sort of like the church does? <laughs> okay, before we make this uh, this podcast a complete rant about. Uh, Religious double standards. Anyway, moving swiftly on. Yes. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move so on. So um, what, what have uh, we got lined up for today then, Matt? What we've got lined up for today, we've got some highlights from the world of gaming, as usual. Um, we thought for the second part of our How to Play series, having discussed group concepts uh, last time, that uh, you and I would have a bit of a chat about actually creating characters and what we've learned um, with our various players creating characters and, of course, creating characters for each other's campaigns over the last few months. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be um, a uh, quite interesting, probably a bit free-form conversation. I don't think we've really thought about what we're going to say, but just a chance to talk about our impressions, really. Don't look at the man behind the curtains. Of course, we have carefully scripted that conversation and prepared <laughs> it with lots of revision. Uh, no, uh, you have actually uh, scripted and prepared and recorded uh, an essay on our faction of the episode, which is uh, this time the Legion, which surely must have been the most boring faction we could find in the book. Uh, well, uh, I, th- I think the problem was um, scratching my head about what we're going to do. And I thought, ha ha, I'm using the Legion now much more, uh, much more. Um, uh, what work? My brain is not working today. God, I haven't really got going. Um, but I'm using them much more. Um, uh, oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to. So go you mean to say this? You mean I'm to gonna... say this isn't a better world at all? This is actually a slightly <laughs> less prepared world with maybe more sin than in this is, season one. Well, this is just a, 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 the the onset of uh, early dementia, clearly, um, where I can't even think of a simple word, even though I've tried twice to think of it. Anyway, I'm using the Legion a lot more in Spectral Corsair campaign. And so I thought, ah, this would be an easy one to uh, to look at and do do some do an essay for, for the podcast. And then I thought, oh, God, they're a bit boring, aren't they? But uh, we'll see. Uh, I, have, I have had a bit of a think, and I think I've come up with something which perhaps proves they're not as boring as they might seem at first glance. Smashing. Well, we'll, we'll I'll test you on that, and... Uh... We'll see how much discussion we get out of your essay at the end, and that will show us how interesting they really turn out to be. Then uh, my essay uh, for this episode is a new ship. So uh, we'll be talking about the Black Sheep Portal Hopper uh, later in the programme. And then you've got an update, and I'm a bit surprised by this. I thought you were going to take a rest, but uh, you've already launched the next season, as it were, of your Spectral Corsair campaign. Yes, so the the guys uh, had no um, no no desire to slow down or or not play anymore, play different characters, or do anything else, or play something else. Um, not that I really asked them actually, but we just carried on and everyone was happy with that. <laughs> so uh, we've now taken another uh, slightly different tack, which um, I will talk about the first scenario uh, later on. 
Brilliant. And I've got some news from a nascent uh, group that might well be forming uh, around my uh, local friendly local gaming shop. Uh, and then I think, since I didn't set you any homework and you ended up doing that really boring assignment of the Legion, uh, we have to remember... <laughs> We're really talking up me some homework. this one, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> boring, boring. It's going to yeah. be boring. Don't listen to the Legion bit. It's boring. Don't even bother listening to this episode. No, do bother listening to the episode. It isn't as boring as we're making it out to be. Well, let's hope, hope not, <laughs> anyway. Fact, Time will tell. It's... Uh, well, I've had a bit of a preview of your of your essay, and I actually think... You've hit on some really interesting stuff. So, shall we crack on? Let's the crack world on. world of gaming. World of gaming. Do you remember when we were at Dragon Meat, uh, you, me and Tony were in the bar having, I guess, a beer. Uh, they were quite expensive beers, so we might have been <laughs> having a tap water. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, and then a colleague of mine from work appeared. Uh, and it's one of those situations where you kind of go, no, I know who you are, but you're in entirely the wrong place. And so yes. I'm really confused. Yes, I do remember. Um, yeah. And she she explained that she felt she was really confused as well because she felt she was in the wrong place because she wasn't a gamer. She'd only turned up with her partner who is into tabletop and his name was Pete. And he mentioned that he was um, about to launch a new game. And I do that remember, yeah. RPG is called Triumvine, and it's on Kickstarter now. Yeah, excellent. Um, and I, it's, uh, um, I, I, don't know, I don't know anything about it. What's, uh, what's, the, uh, what's the genre? Right, well, I'm not entirely sure, except to say that there <laughs> are three planes, and so I think in a way there's a bit of a choice between three genres. Oh, okay. uh, there's a, a golden plane, which seems to be quite high magic fantasy, there's a middle plane, for want of a better word, which seems to be kind of steampunky, industrial revolutionary sort of thing. And then there's a lower plane, which is kind of like our world. But whether it's our world now or historical, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Oh. Uh, and I think the campaign involves traveling, you know, creating characters from each of those planes in your party. And the campaign sort of takes you between all three of them. Right. Um now it's it's interestingly uh he makes quite a bold statement that uh it's a kind of it it it, it emphasizes non-combat conflict rather right. than combat okay in the system and in, in fact he's created a sort of generic system that sits alongside called the imperial system and this is a setting but the two could be split out and i guess you could you could play the setting with your D&D 5e rules if you really if you wanted, wanted to yeah um or you could use the imperial system to to create your own world, um, but it is you know, the emphasis is on finding other solutions to conflict other than combat. Although I think it still lets you hit people with swords if that's <laughs> your thing. Um, so I I mean really I you know I haven't played it I I can't say uh, whether it's any good. I think we've been invited to um, to maybe have an online game with Peter if uh, if we'd like. So okay. maybe we should consider that. I don't think we could get that in before the end of the Kickstarter because there's only a couple of weeks of that left to go. Right. Have but you... I did back it. I was going to say, did you back it? Okay, cool. Yeah, well, you know, I I did back it because, well, because when a mate from work turns up at, at, at Dragon Meat, 
you kind of feel beholden to them, don't you? <laughs> but uh, I, I wasn't really looking for a new RPG to play now, but I felt I ought to get in on the ground floor with this one. I've only really? backed it at PDF level. Um, uh, I'm not sure that I'm ready to make a commitment in hardback, but uh, that's definitely an interesting looking concept to watch. Okay, well, I'll um, go and have a look at it. So I hadn't heard about that one before. Um, and I, Something I think... else that I definitely decided against backing is something that I think you have backed. Uh, yeah, the Crusader Kings uh, board game. Absolutely. I I backed that the minute I saw it, actually. Um, and I, now I'm not sure whether, my again, my brain's playing tricks on me or not, but I know we've talked about this before, and I can't remember whether we talked about it actually on air or not. So apologies if I'm just repeating myself. But um, this board game is uh, the secret project that Nilsson Costa mentioned to us when we were in Sweden last year. I'm I'm guessing it was because they were talking about a board game. And it's exactly the kind of thing that I've been looking for in board games. So Crusader Kings 2 is a computer game. It's about uh, sort of medieval empire building and sort of generational game whereby you play your family uh, and then your family have to marry and then you go and try and conquer places. And so it, uh, the game that I've played on the computer that's very similar was uh, Medieval Total War, which is very, very similar concept. But I've never played Crusader Kings on the computer. Oh, have you not? No. Ah. So, But Medieval Total War or the first version of Medieval Total War, I think, is very, very similar or it's got all the same elements that I really love uh, so it's got things like your dynasty building where you will try and marry off your children or, or your family members and then they will have children and they will become your next generation of leaders and then your leaders will die and they'll die in battle or they'll die in their bed um, but the idea of having this as a board game and having had a quick look at uh, the way they've seems to have put it together they seem to really have got the uh, certainly, I mean, I haven't played it. Obviously, I haven't, I haven't had a chance to do that. I didn't get to the expo um, a couple of weeks ago, unfortunately, where I think they were demoing it a little bit. Yeah. But it's, it seems to have all those really good, interesting elements of the strategy, uh, the strategy uh, computer game, and put it through into a board game. So I back that straight away. It's, I think, the Kickstarter is just about to finish. Um, they've unlocked. 20 stretch goals i think so it's done very very well indeed um, as you'd expect um, again it looks excellent so really looking forward to seeing that and um, it will be a little while before uh, before we get it but yeah yeah excellent. now i have played the computer game uh, okay. and i really like it um actually it's not a game that i feel i'm any good at <laughs> it's one that takes a long time. I'm always rushing my decisions. It's one. It, it's kind of the ideal computer game that I wish I had when I was at university and had more time. Yeah. And I know I'm at university again now, but I'm doing that part time <laughs> and I'm doing a job and um and a podcast. And that means you generally and, have less time and also and having a know, family and a life. Y- your first years <laughs> at university, uh, you waste time. I remember playing Civilization at one point and thinking, oh. Just about time for half an hour civilization before bed. And then uh, <laughs> six hours later, looking up a, a moment <laughs> later and going, What's that strange light in the room? Oh, it's the morning. Yes. <laughs> um, I've been there. Done uh, yeah. So I would have done that with Crusader Kings if it had been around at the time. It's really complex. Uh, it's really 
um yeah it's it's a great game i i, I know you'd enjoy it definitely mm. uh and it's worth i will say it's worth downloading it if you've got any time at all to spare <laughs> and i i was initially quite interested by crusader kings so i thought oh all of the fun of crusader kings but it doesn't take hours to play but actually, of course, it does take hours, doesn't it? Like yeah. any board game with that sort of complexity, it's it's a three or four hour long game, I think. Yeah, probably. And in the end, I think reason got the better of me. And I thought, look, I've got a copy of the Game of Thrones board game that I have never played. <laughs> I've, got, yeah. I've got Firefly Adventures, which I was very excited about. I've played once. Yeah, oh, that, I, that's just I, so I, long. I've got that as well. And I've played it once or twice. And after no, about... no, you've got the Firefly board game. Okay, but this again, is different. That takes, oh, that right. takes yeah. Firefly Adventures is a kind of skirmish game that just came out a few months ago. But again, oh, I played right. that once. Yeah. I played the board game a couple of times, but you're right, that takes a long time. It takes ages, I've and got, you get to the um, point where you're just willing your opponents to complete their missions so you can so the game yeah. can end, which is a bit of a pity. I've got Fury of Dracula, which I played twice. I haven't got time, and I haven't got a family... I've got a mate called Chris who um, who has a family who all sort of sit around the table every night and play a board game. Yeah, but my family won't do that. So no, my so, boys, no. my boys do that. My my sons do. Jenny used to, but she doesn't really doesn't really get the time so much anymore or have the inclination. Which in one way is a good thing because she's actually she's brilliant at these sort of strategy games. Uh, and also very competitive. So, so you'd you'd lose if she did play. So she wins saying. a lot, and then she gets upset when she doesn't win. So, <laughs> ah, right. Yeah. But, well, my um, wife really, really, really doesn't like games of yeah. any sort. Uh, I mean, Scrabble, I think she'll go for. Uh, yeah. But every almost everything else, um, she doesn't like. You do need to invest uh, so, an afternoon or an evening to get through some of these games, and I find the investment of the time is usually worth it. Um, but yeah. It's not for everybody. Yeah, and when we get together, you know, we get together so rarely, we want to play one of our many long, ongoing campaigns of one of our well-playing games. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure we'd all enjoy playing any one of these games, but yeah. at the cost of not, not taking the story forward on one of the others. So yeah. that's not for me, but I'm really glad you've invested in it. Maybe at some point we'll get to play that one together. Yeah, I think maybe we should. Yeah. I'm still waiting for the Nemesis board game that I kicked in for. Um I'm not sure. I think I've done the, um, the what do you call it, the pledge manager thing. So I think it should be on its way relatively soon. Um, which is the one that's uh, effectively taking Alien and making it into a board game. So that sounds right. Quite, yes, I remember fun. you. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. talking of um, delivery of, uh, of of things that people have backed, uh, one of the things that I saw came out. Uh, either first thing this morning or or yesterday, was for backers of the Emissary Lost campaign, the novella Dark Between the Stars. Yes, I saw that, yeah. Hey, did you read that? Uh, I haven't read that one, I don't think. Um, I've read... Oh, it's interesting. I, I mean, I feel a bit cheated because I actually paid good money to, to Amazon for a Kindle version of <laughs> the original publication of that. But it's yeah. a lovely read, actually. Um, it adds depth... if. As if we needed any more depth to the world. No, I it does actually <laughs> add depth. Um, and there's some great little turns of phrase in it. It's uh, written by um, uh, Matthias Lilia. Um, Lilia. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if, you, if, you, if you're not paying for it, if you're, if you're a backer for uh, 
um, emissary loves to reading that. Yeah. It's great fun. Yeah. I will. Uh, oh, anything? Yeah, just uh, another bit of world of gaming, I guess. Uh, tomorrow, uh, it will be too late for those of you listening to this program. But uh, <laughs> to, uh, yeah, tomorrow is Friday. Saturday the sixteenth, isn't it? So uh, or yes, 17th. and on Saturday sixteenth, it is Free RPG Day. Uh, yes. Do you have a funny local game store that you're going to visit on that day? No, we don't. Um, there isn't one. Um... Very near here, there is a there's a games workshop shop in uh, in Stevenage, uh, which is a little way off. But no, I don't really. Yeah, but the hobby shop that was here uh, closed oh, probably a decade ago. So no, we're, uh, we're we're sadly lacking in this neck of the woods, actually. Ah well, something to think about for our retirement, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but be? yeah, I've got a I've got a friendly local game store. I'm going to be running Unknown Armies there tomorrow afternoon, mm. um, and cool. some of the loot that's come out looks quite interesting. Uh, there's a sort of preview, quick start version of the new Warhammer 40k role playing game called Wrath and Fury. I think. Yeah. Uh, there's a Cthulhu Confidential, which is a one to one. Remember we play tested Cthulhu Confidential. Yes, I do remember. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a little freebie sort of quick start version of that, yeah, uh, cool. which looks quite nice. And I'm running. In fact, I've already got my loot because uh, <laughs> my local game store uh, gave me a copy early since I'm running it tomorrow afternoon. <laughs> it would have been a pretty tough ass to give it to me in the morning. And <laughs> yeah. Run it by the end. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, the Unknown Armies Quick Start is a lovely little package, and I thoroughly recommend it, particularly yeah. to people who've never quite got Unknown Armies, um, because this is a really well-written scenario that kind of takes you from the normal world of a sort of police procedural into yeah. the weirdness of uh, playing, as they call it, broken people conspiring to fix the world um, hmm. in a relatively smooth way. And yeah, I mean, I've heard you talk freebies. quite a lot. Yeah, I've heard you talk quite a lot about unknown armies, but um, even from all of that, I I still don't really have a, a a clear concept in my mind of what the game is all about. So maybe uh, that might be something I'll uh, I'll pick up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or good. maybe um, I tell you what, uh, we could uh, potentially run it at some point. Yeah, maybe absolutely. During our weekend in Norfolk this year. Yeah. Anyway, that's enough about the rest of the world of gaming. <laughs> Shall we get into some actual Coriolis content? Let's, let's get into some actual Coriolis content. Uh, and we are going to have a little discussion about uh, character creation. Aren't we? Yeah. So, we what are. so what do you want to say about character creation? So, so listeners, well, you now realise I mean, that we've, we've come we've to a totally unscripted part of the, of the episode. Uh Yes, but well prepared part of the episode. We've spent we've spent hours pouring in depth over the character creation rules, haven't we? We, we have done a lot of character creation, yeah. Yes, over, over the years, not necessarily <laughs> in advance of this conversation. <laughs> no. Uh, but no, I was just going to say. I think the thing for me again that, that that is a real strength is the collaborative approach to player character generation for the group. So obviously, you're yes, you're pushed to think about that right at the start when you're choosing your group concept. But then the the, the character creation itself uh, has elements that forces you to hook in with the other players, like your PC buddy, for example. Um, despite my some of my misgivings on some of that, which I, 
I remember saying about a year ago. Um, for those yeah. who haven't heard it, I can't remember which episode it was, but one of the first. Yeah, you did two go on a rant about. I don't want to have a buddy. I want to make my buddy in play. Yeah, which I think and, is and fair to be enough. fair, I I know exactly where you're coming from because I think in the last couple of years I have become less interested in creating a detailed background for my character at generation stage, and I much prefer I'm finding systems that give you relatively light character creation. And then you build up your character's background as you play. Yes, I I agree, and I think also I do very much like the uh, the element where in some games, and I think Fate is a really good example of this, where the other players influence the your character, the 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 background and the the likes and dislikes of your character and what you're good at. I think that's a really Interesting, because one thing I yes. find with a lot of games um, is that the, the 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 random element is taken out of your character generation. So, if I was playing me when I say turned eighteen, you know, I'm presented with me at eighteen. If you see what I mean. So, there are things that have happened in my life that are, I didn't choose. There are things that mm-hmm. didn't happen in my life that I would perhaps like to have done. Um, and I think some games. You, you can choose your perfect character. And actually, I quite like the, 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 the old traditional element where you would roll some dice to decide what your stats were. You wouldn't be given the option to, to fiddle them around too much. And you actually can end up with something that you don't like about your character, but it's all part of playing that character. You, know, you have to you manage. You make the best of what you're given. Yeah, and I think some modern, certainly a lot of modern games or recent games in the last 10 or 15 years give you too much latitude to say, I want to choose a cybernetic soldier with, uh, you know, strength of X and a dexterity of Y, and he's going to be uh, a bit dysfunctional in social situations, rather than rolling it up and seeing what the dice give you. And there, yeah. there needs to be a balance between the two, I think. But I I do very much like letting the dice dictate your character's, you know, your character a little bit at least, up to the point where you go, right, I'm playing this character now. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, I, I still love Traveller character generation. Mm. Um, Me too. You know, for for giving you a character that is nothing like your first original concept. But I can understand, um, you know, people who want to role play might well have an idea of the sort of character they want to role play. And so this tends, uh, this this system that we have in the Coriolis system is mostly choosing. But there are a couple of random things I quite like. Uh, And as you say, it's designed to be done round the table in a session zero with the rest of your players. Yeah. So you're all creating characters together. And I think there, you've got to have a simple system. Uh, Robin Laws talks about character generation as homework. And if you imagine some of the systems, what we have played in the past, um, I'm thinking especially aces and eights. Uh, if you want to make a, if you want to use the full character creation system there, it takes bloody hours yes it's fun i really enjoyed it i loved rolling all those random tables and discovering the character i was but it you know you couldn't possibly do that with everybody else particularly if you're all sharing one book 
because you know you've got a bunch <laughs> yeah. of options to choose as well as the random things um and you know you're you're sitting there while somebody's making complex calculations to work out what their to hit rate is or bonus or whatever yeah. um so you know a lot of old old style character creation systems had to be done at home and if you want to do it around the table it's got to be relatively simple and this one is relatively simple yeah the first choice it gives you is one that i'm not convinced i like okay and that's uh the uh, i think they call it origin it's where you choose whether you're first come or zenithian yep now i have a little bit of a problem with the fact that you know as we've played we've We've built our understanding of what the first come and the Zenithians are. In fact, this has zero mechanical effect on your character. They talk about how the first come and the Zenithians have merged and inter, uh, you know, and some first come becomes Zenithian and vice versa. I kind of feel that's a choice that we could well be making later in the game when we when it's important maybe to ally yourself with one faction or the other. Yeah. To I, to start off with, with that one, I'm feeling you know, it doesn't it doesn't really help you place your character at all. Um unlike the next choice you make which is about the the sort of upbringing. I'm going to slightly station real privileged. Yeah, I'm going to slightly sorry. disagree with you I think on that point. So Well, go I ahead, think, you fucker. I, I mean, the, sorry, go ahead. You my learned <laughs> friend. <laughs> Cuz obviously I'm right. Um uh, I, I think I the thing that. that I doubt I think that very much. The th- <laughs> shut up. <laughs> the thing with the origin, uh, for me, basically says where you've come from. It doesn't necessarily, and it, well, unless as a as a player you've decided I really want to be a Zelosian or I really want to be, um, you know, a, in the consortium, where it's kind of obvious where your 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 heritage will have, you know, where, where you've come from. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it just it's just like you know you don't have to stick with that as part of your character so you could easily be a Zenithian you know you say that oh, I was on you know my family was on the Zenith uh, I've been living on Kua say uh, or Coriolis even but actually I've chosen to follow the first come ideology so I don't think it sets it's not like it's setting anything in stone what it's doing is just no, telling I'm not, a bit I'm of not a story about it's... where you've come from I, I'm not saying it, it's setting anything in stone. I just don't think it's necessarily the first decision we should be asking, particularly new players, to make. Possibly, I I, I see that. Yeah, because I think you know there is so much stuff in the book, and if you are coming to it from not having played it before or not knowing much about it, the actual distinction between Zenithian and First Come is probably irrelevant at that point. Or you just don't Isn't know. It? I think go, oh, no, I'll, I'll be a first come. Okay, that sounds good. And then actually you realise yeah. that that doesn't fit your character at all. But then that could be a nice twist because then if you later on decide actually you much rather play a character who's got Zenithian ideals, then that gives you a little, perhaps a bit of conflict. You know, you're from a first come family, but actually, you know, you're the black sheep yeah. because you want to follow Zenithian uh, principles. Don't know. Exactly. You know, I think I think that is a choice that as you discover more about the universe and, you know, and your fellow players, then you might go, oh, you know, all my players are first come. I'm going to be the Zenithian grit 
in 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 the team. Yeah, uh, that might well be you know an interesting choice to make. Or you go, oh, I've got this fascinating history I've built up here. I want to be the opposite to what my parents are, so that I can have that conflict within myself. That's all good stuff. But as I say, as the first thing you do, it feels to me that it's not a choice I'd be making at this point in the in the role playing. Yeah. Um. You know, I, I think it's fine to roll the you know of the planets you come from. Um, that's fine, and that might give you a hint as to uh, what you are. But let's face it: if you roll on a random allocation of your home system and you get Zalos, then really, <laughs> it's you're kind you're of stuck being a bit, first aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, you know, I, I yeah, I, 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 I'm less worried about the choosing your home planet at this stage in the game it might well be a bit of an anchor in the enormous realm of possibilities that the that the uh the third horizon offers but in my heart of hearts i think as i've come to know the third horizon better i'd have stuck that towards the end of character creation rather than at the beginning but perhaps perhaps i also think actually the home system thing which only gives you Really, it only gives you the main systems. Even though, if you roll a six, yes. it says choose. Um, I would suggest yes, <laughs> just go straight to page three hundred and one. I think it is, and roll on the system list. Because uh, yes. why shouldn't you? Why shouldn't you come from one of the other systems? Why should you? Have I mean, to, I guess you know. I guess the the population centers are in those big systems, but there are people all over the horizon. So, for, for a player character, you know, if you're doing some kind of a population topographical study or something and you're randomly rolling, then yes, favour the big systems. But if you're just choosing where your character comes from, they can come from anywhere. Why not roll on the big table and end up coming from Rigel or from uh, Zib or something? That might be interesting. Yes. It could yeah. be the, no, I, could I, be I the little country hat, um, the old country hick coming to the big city lights kind of thing. Well, precisely. Actually, you know, I do think in terms of introducing people to Coriolis, I'd love to do some sort of introductory adventure where where you are newcomers to this amazing city in the stars that yeah. the Coriolis station is. Um, so that would be fun. I think they've probably gone for those five systems that they choose there in a sort of uh, in a nod to the complexity of the horizon for new players. So it's kind of saying... Yeah, well, quite you could possibly. choose. Yeah, but but you know, just just to give you a few simple handles, you know, do you want to come from Zalos? Okay, it's kind of you you you're like a guy from Warhammer Forty K or Debaron. You're an Arab, you know, and there's a few yes. clues there that are easy to get your head around if you're new to the uh, to the game. But yeah. again, I'm not convinced that that's the first. That's where I'd start character creation. Um, whereas the upbringing. Uh, bit which you choose and that's interesting the way they say you know here, here's a way to randomly roll your home system but um uh then then you choose your your upbringing is i can't i think kind of interesting but hmm. uh for me that that makes more sense as as where to start with character creation where you're going do i want to be dirt poor privileged or somewhere in between yeah, I'm not sure it makes a lot of difference, really. But yeah, but you're wrong, as yeah. I said earlier on. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally, um, 
Moving on, uh, in, actually, here's an interesting thing that uh, my guys were doing group concept. Uh, this is only that we had a little bit of a break in our session one. Our GM had to take a phone call and one of the players said, oh, we could talk about group concept. So they talked about group concept and I'll tell you um, what they concluded later on. But okay. they pretty quickly got into choosing what their character concepts would be. So they've already jumped past the first two stages yeah. and have started thinking about their character concepts um, without doing anything else at all. So I think, you know, that instinctively uh, that came out of that group concept conversation. Yeah, I think that's uh, probably a, a really important point because for most people, um, I think you come to a game with at least a vague idea of the kind of character you might want to play. And so actually mm. you end up with a with a system like Coriolis. You end up saying, well, actually, I want to be a data spider that you know is, a, is great at hacking or something. And then you actually go back through the process to sort of retrofit um, the rest of it to fit what you want your character to look like at the end. And that's fine. That's, uh, you know, that's fine. It does possibly take away some of the random element that I was talking about before, but so be it. And it works. I think maybe I'm just getting a bit hung up on that random element a little bit. Cause, uh, cause I'd like to get hung up on really small, unimportant points perhaps. <laughs> but uh... Yeah. Well, there is a random element, but it's a random element. I think you're not going to like that. will come to in a, in a few moments. <laughs> Go on. What's that you random know, and... element then? Well, of course, choosing your icon, or rather, uh, be Rolling. drawing yeah. your icon from the deck of icon cards. <laughs> well, I think that's uh, just like uh, saying when when were you born, isn't it? I mean, so because it's effectively yeah. your star sign. So, I'm, but it also to, gives you a talent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, my 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 general kind of dislike of drawing cards over and above rolling a dice for randomizing things. Um, Again, it's probably one of those little things I ought to get over and stop going on about. But it's, uh, I think it is, you know, yeah. I'll, probably. I'll have to bring it up with my therapist next time. Count that as one of your sins, and let's see <laughs> one if of this my, series can be without it. One of my many, many sins. Many sins. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, I won't mention that so, again for the whole season. This is, this is a system that's about point allocation. Um, yeah. You get different points depending on your, your upbringing, but they're... They are few in number, so it's not one of those systems where you've got like 300 points and a million different options and you spend ages doing homework. Yeah, uh, It is the sort of point allocation you can do around the table quite And that's easily. a real strength as well, I think, of the system because um, it, it's, it's really simple, but it doesn't feel stupidly simple. It feels complex enough, no. but uh, it does what it needs to do without having to spend, like you say... Uh, several hours and some kind of math degree to work out where you're going to spend all your points. Now, talking of math degree, though, um, some people despise min-maxers in games. I mm. don't, actually. I think, you know, if if your, if your thing, the, the ludic element that you enjoy in any game is min-maxing and trying to break the system, then <laughs> to my mind, that, that's part of playing the game. Um, yeah. I might not like you as a person, but I'm not going to stop you from doing that. So here's a little quiz for you. <laughs> Can you tell me what the min-maxer's first choice should be? Um, presumably making your one of your your important stat 
five points rather than four. Now, before that even... Um... You haven't got a clue, have you? No, I don't really, have to tell you. don't really care either, actually, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, this is advice to min-maxers out there. In terms of upbringing, if you're a min-maxer, you want to be a plebeian. You don't want to be stationary yeah. or privileged. Yeah. And why is that, Dave? It's because you get more attribute points. You do. And you can earn skill points in play, but you can't, can't earn, earn attribute, attribute points. points. No, exactly. Um, yeah. But of course, it does give you less money to spend, and often min-maxers like lots of kit. Uh, but uh, I think, to be honest, that's the way they should go. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, again, this, the system here does actually um, lend itself to a bit of uh, kind of unconscious min-maxing, almost. And the, the reason I say that is... So uh, Morgan's character in my campaign, Ajit, is a sniper uh, and an agent. He's an assassin. And he the stats he now has, having been playing him for a year and having had a really good start when he set up his character in the first place, he's going to be the best sniper in the whole horizon. There'll be nobody better than cool. him. Um, which is fine. Uh, I think you just have to recognize that that you can reach that point relatively easily and i wonder whether over the last year i've been slightly too generous in the amount of experience i've been giving out to the players um in the games mm -hmm. but yeah that's a lesson for me well you, you know, are having... more generous than me aren't you i am i'm a generous gm points. you know and you're a yeah. horrible miserly evil uh gm i was going to say something else there but i thought better not <laughs> My, my end of well, so, so um, basically what you've just admitted is I'm right to be miserly. I, I think I could be more miserly and it wouldn't damage the the game. It would it would benefit the yeah. game. So I think I am slightly over generous, yeah. Um but that's okay. that's not that's not a problem again, because I think the the rate of character death is going to be quite high. So you know, if you get a bit maxed out, you're not gonna live for very long anyway. So why not enjoy it while you can, kind of thing. No, um, no, I, I think that's, I think that's to fair. You know, I've got no problem with stereotypical, not stereotypical. I don't know whether I mean stereotypical, but it's a word that'll do. With, <laughs> if you like, one-dimensional characters. You know, movies are full of guys who are the best sniper you've ever seen. Yes, and yeah. hopefully play will bring out some nuance in that but if they start off as pretty close to being the best sniper they've ever seen why not if that's what a character that's what a player wants to play you know i used to have a character uh no, it was it was andy gibbs used to have a character in traveler who through random generation was pretty much the best pilot you've ever seen mm -hmm, yeah and um is that uh, biggles know, he was fabulous biggles exactly yeah. jeremiah yeah. biggles yeah Jeremiah Biggles, that was his name. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I had no problem playing alongside him. I wasn't going to try and compete with him on piloting skills because <laughs> no. I was a businessman of some sort. Anyway, um, so, yeah, I, you know, I, 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 I don't I don't have a problem with that sort of I don't remember um, stereotypical what character. my character was in that campaign. Was that was that was that the one where I was so, the Cu Cuban mercenary? Ferdinand oh Rodriguez. Yeah. Uh, if he was Jeremiah Biggles, I was Jacob Trevelyan. Yes, and... it would have been. It would have been Ferdinand Rodriguez was the Cuban mercenary. Mm. Yeah, with lots of cybernetic yeah. arms and legs. 
yeah, there might have been a bit of min-maxing going on there as well, actually. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we were teenagers. Min-maxing was all the rage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was young, you know, I you know, inexperienced, and he was tough. So, anyway, yeah. Um, I was uh, say something. Yeah, really the other, the other thing you briefly wanted to talk about, I, I was, um, was reputation. Yes, I know we've mentioned reputation before but um we were just talking before we started to record and and you know i i i commented that i don't use it at all um not through any conscious decision um as a gm i don't use it at all um it just kind of never comes up it just feels almost like a certainly in the games that i'm running which are trading exploring quite a lot of fighting um but there is some negotiation going on um it, it just kind of feels like a rule that's unnecessary so i just haven't really worried about it um i know that in in the mukafar campaign you you did i think use reputation as a modifier at one point didn't you yeah uh you uh i needed to, i needed to use reputation because you were getting so many successes in your manipulation roles no <laughs> it makes a nice I was, change i was already using <laughs> reputation but dis- despite the reputation bonus i was i was uh, uh or reputation modifiers i should say that i was giving you you were still getting loads of successes so uh, i can see how it works mechanically but there is a thing about the story world where I think reputation is going to be a far more important mechanic in the upcoming Forbidden Lands campaign. And I'm not convinced that it is well-placed here in the Third Horizon. I know what they're trying to get. You know, they are trying to have this idea of um, diplomacy and 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 social standing and stuff. Characters and social standing. But as we've said before, and I, I won't bore our listeners with this one, the third horizon is big. I mean, really big. I mean, you might <laughs> you think, think it's a long way down it, to the chemist. Yeah. <laughs> but given the but population of the third horizon. to the third horizon. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that most of our player characters would have a reputation that registers at all on the scale of um, this world that we're yeah. in. And you, I think it's so generally... it's so situational as well. So you know, we, I think we said before that you know you've got yeah. there will be people who in a particular relationship where reputation would really matter, and then it wouldn't matter for anybody else at all. So actually, it wouldn't matter if it was the most you know highfalutin, powerful bureaucrat from the spire in Coriolis telling somebody something if they've got no kind of position or authority over them they say well i don't give monkeys you've got a reputation of eight i'm gonna do what i like bog off so i think it's yeah so i i don't feel for me anyway as a gm that the game has lost anything by me leaving out the reputation bonuses yeah but each to their own but yeah i mean we've talked about it before so maybe we should uh leave it there for now yeah um so I think the only thing, or there are two things then, we're kind of coming, you know, we've, we've made our stats, we've, we've chosen who we are, we've uh, got our buddy relationships, and I know you've got a bit of a problem with choosing your buddy relationships this early in the game, and I can sort of understand that, and also choosing your problem this early. And I like the fact that in things like Forbidden Worlds, they've kind of said, well, you know, start off with one now, but you can change it later. Um, yeah. And they could make that more explicit in this one, I think. All our listeners can take uh, 
that, although it isn't explicit in this book, do take that advice from the creators of this and other games that that, that make those decisions. I, I think, for me, you you just need to use that as a as a guide to mm. the kind of conversations you want to be having or the kind of things you want to be thinking about rather than have it as a uh, definitive, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, do that, you know, otherwise you haven't done your character properly. No, just yeah. use it as an opportunity to think, is there a relationship here actually I can have with somebody else in the group that I want, that would naturally be a PC buddy kind of thing? You don't have to choose the PC buddy if you don't want to. Um, and also on the, uh, the the problem thing, most of my players maybe not most but some of them at least have changed their problem during the the campaign because the original one they chose wasn't uh you know didn't didn't really cut it wasn't it wasn't adding very much yeah. to to the game and there's a couple of them who haven't changed their problems yet but i might encourage them to think about it where the problems haven't really manifested themselves so again morgan's character has got um indebted as his problem so he's got great big debts. I haven't yet found out a way of really drawing that into the game in a way that I thought would be really interesting. Uh, and mm. similarly, um, 8-Bit, Sebastian Fenwick character, Paul's character, has um, effectively got an Ishma Earth license out against him. And again, I haven't found the right way to introduce that yet. I've thought about trying to a couple of times. But again, it just doesn't add much to kind of the action that's going on already. So they're not yeah. very interesting. So I might find some way of having those change and have them become problems that are more readily role-playable because those ones are quite difficult to role-play. Yeah. But, uh, so so I think our overall advice is um, actually maybe you don't need to sort those out around the table unless there's a really obvious one. Yeah. Absolutely. That, you know, that, and, and when there's a really obvious one, it is hopefully going to start setting out what might well be the storyline of the campaign. Yeah, so, completely, yeah. you know, if they had said, oh, we're wanting, we're wanting to be Han Solo running away from Jabba the Hutt, then obviously being in debt, you know, might might be a really useful problem. But yes. that's not the way that the group as a whole went. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, maybe play a session or two before you feel you need to start thinking about what your problems and who your buddies are yeah yeah it's good advice the thing that i think that takes the time when you're around the table and you're all doing this together is choosing that one talent <laughs> you only get to choose one talent I yeah mean, you know, the group will choose their group talent you get given you know, your astrological talent as it were your icon talent but unless you're a humanite you only have to choose one other one but i think Actually, that might take more time around the table. Yeah, I mean, that, like you said, that's probably the most time-consuming part of of this of this particular character generation system. But compared to others, it's actually still really quick and swift. And, and right, quite often, yeah. players have an idea by then of the kind of thing they're after, and it's quite easy to choose one quite quickly. And I guess the other thing that you might well leave until you've left the table is um, going through all the equipment lists and spending your cash on equipment. 
Which that's the most time-consuming I... thing, actually, um, for character generation, because the largely actually because the the way they've laid out the equipment lists is a bit rubbish. It's dreadful. It's it's one of the few <laughs> thing, one of the few criticisms of of uh, Coriolis as a game is their equipment lists are just absolutely shocking. Uh, just very difficult to use, just because they've split them up by kind of equipment theme, and you then have to go through: Am I in the right theme? Am I on the right? Ah. So if they're going to do a reprint, do the equipment lists differently. Make them alphabetical. Be much easier. Yes. Anyway, I I agree. In fact, I don't want to see necessarily that in a reprint. Although a reprint would be lovely, but actually, I'd almost like to see some sort of free PDF. A player supplement that we could hand out and people could go home and do that for homework yes because that's a good, good thought yeah you know i mean okay if they come to the table and everybody's got uh you know a particular device that the group only really needs one of well that's that's an easy thing to solve you know before play but that sort of thing i think um isn't really adding anything to it and to be honest what i like about the system is they do give you as part of the core concept, some basic equipment choices to make so yes. you can start playing straight That's away. That's good. I like, I like and that. And you don't need to. No. But there is a thing with science fiction gaming, I think, where people do like to spend a bit of time buying some kit. That's part of what science fiction gaming's about. Yeah, and very so much so. If we're going to facilitate that, I think some sort of little supplement with, as you say, reorganised equipment lists... Uh, and some slightly better descriptions as well in some of them. I feel with some of those bits of equipment, they've cut down the words from, or maybe in Swedish, it all makes more sense. Yeah. But there are definitely a couple of things there that the English description still leaves you asking questions of well, what is it actually doing? Um, yeah. So I'd like to see a little player's supplement that could have a, uh, those in. And ideally, as I say, something that as GMs, we could give them away. Um, yeah, to, no, that uh, sounds people. like a good idea. Oh, and the one thing the book does have is some nice pictures of some of the guns that they talk about. The you know the kind of the kind of things that Legion soldiers might possibly use. And I wonder if people are spotting yes. my obvious segue. I took a little bit of of homework um, to look at the Legion, and here's oh, well, here let's listen to the to the to the musings that I came up with. I believe in something greater than myself. A better world. A world without sin. I'm not going to live in that world. There's no place for me there. I'm a monster. What I do is evil. I have no illusions about it. But it must be done. The best must die. So the rest can live. The Legion, on the face of it, seems a really run-of-the-mill, stereotypical bunch of bad guys. They are, in fact, a first-come faction, but are such a young faction and are so closely allied with the Consortium that, to all intents and purposes, they are considered to be Zenithian. Many say that the two factions should just merge, but the Legion would then have to relinquish their priceless seat on the Coriolis Council. But behind this veil of simplicity, the faction might be hiding layers of nuance that could energise an exciting Coriolis campaign. The Legion is seen as the military arm of the Consortium, as such it is. But it's more than that as well. They are a faction in their own right that simply allies itself with the Consortium, as they are natural bedfellows. 
obvious brothers and sisters in arms, with much the same outlook on life in the Third Horizon, a Zenithian one. With many of the same enemies, the Order of the Pariah and Nomad Federation to count just two, with the same interests at heart and both benefiting from their joint ventures. But perhaps this simplistic stereotype masks a more complicated relationship, one that is fractured and weak and balanced on the edge of a knife. And maybe this balance is threatened by the inequalities in the relationship between the two. The Legion has the military capability, the cutting edge, the Dusex machina. The Consortium has the trade, the money, the economic weight. Does the Consortium even have any military strength it would call its own? Do they have any power, any force of arms whatsoever, without the Legion by their side? And on the other hand, does the Legion have any economy of its own? How does it pay its way, if not for the retainers given it by the Consortium? Are they two factions forever entwined in a symbiotic dance that neither can survive without? So are they, in fact, just one faction? It is for you to answer those questions. But what this shows is that perhaps the Legion isn't quite such a straightforward and run-of-the-mill faction as it may seem at first glance. And perhaps this Legion-Consortium relationship is much more complicated than it seems. You could imagine that the Consortium is a restraining influence on the warmongering tendencies of the Legion, who without this calming touch would be much more willing to flex their muscles and bully their way around the Third Horizon. Might is right, as the saying sometimes has it. But might doesn't always lead to favourable trade conditions and preferential commercial relationships. So does the Consortium feel uncomfortable by this alliance of convenience? And do they feel it's better to keep their friends close and their enemies closer? Have they in fact overreached themselves and now find that they are holding the Legion Tiger by the tail, just waiting for it to turn and bite back? And how does the Legion feel about all this? Yes, it may be a symbiotic relationship, but the faction that holds the purse strings holds the real power, doesn't it? Perhaps the Legion's leadership is growing tired of the Consortium telling them what to do, where to go, who to fight, and how to die. Chafing under the yoke of these arrogant bureaucrats, men and women safe in the knowledge that while they make the deals and earn the rich rewards, their strong-arm lackeys are quietly waiting to be told what to do tugging their forelocks in respect and deferring to their betters. And let's not forget that the Legion is actually a first-come faction that's turned its back on their first-come ideals. And they must be a pariah to all other first-come factions in the Third Horizon for betraying their ideology and turning their heretical backs on the icons. Surely there must be factions within the Legion itself. The relationship with the Consortium aside that feel drawn to the iconic ideals of their first-come ancestors and regret, or perhaps even hate, the direction the Legion has taken. Maybe there are powers within the Legion looking to correct the historic mistakes that have tied them so closely to the Zenithian heresy and dream of the day when the Legion throws off these unbelievers and embraces the icons once again. So perhaps it is time for the worm to turn. Maybe it's time for the real strength of the Legion to step forward and take control. Maybe it's time for the pampered and soft-skinned merchants who think themselves so powerful, so patrician, so inviolable to be taught a lesson in humility at the end of a legion barrel. But who knows, 
if the trader barons of the consortium are blind to this burning ember of resentment, or if they've sensed the change in the wind and are readying themselves for it. Well, as it turns out, not as boring as I was expecting. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it's interesting. I, I think you and I did have the same thought uh, after you'd said, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll do a thing on the Legion, uh, where we then went away and secretly, without sharing our concerns with each other, went, oh, God, but the Legion is the most boring <laughs> of all the factions. There is and you managed to make it not boring. Mm. Uh, and the, the the fascinating thing as well, actually, and it ties in with a conversation I've just had on the Google Plus group. Um, it makes me think a little bit about how the Zenithians operated. We've got no idea how many were on the Zenith when it arrived, but compared to the millions of people that they're about to meet in the Third Horizon, it's a tiny, tiny proportion. It is, although I'd potentially argue that there probably weren't millions of first come. You're probably talking low millions um, at the most across the okay, horizon. hundreds of thousands still. But how many? <laughs> how many people do you think were on Zenith? Mm, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. But I guess in the tens of thousands, maybe. Yeah, I think. How many? You know, how, I mean, given, how many are on Coriolis now? Is... Do we think? Well, we know that it says somewhere there's about 600,000 people on Coriolis. On Coriolis. And that was yeah. made from the Zenith. So the Zenith is big enough. And that was made from the Zenith. So, so, but we can, we can imagine that, you know, the Coriolis um, doesn't require all the hydroponics and uh, life support systems uh, of a ship traveling through the void because it can be uh, supported by... Um, cure which it orbits around we can imagine as well that it no longer has the engines it needed they've been cannibalized and and the space that they occupied no true has, fair enough has gone away um i'll give so, you that Matt. okay so maybe maybe there were as many as a quarter of a million people arriving on the zenith when it was whole which is more than your initial estimate so but still you know that's a couple of hundred thousand compared to hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of residents in the Third Horizon. Yeah. How does this people that think themselves superior to the, well, who arguably are superior to a bunch of people that after years of war and isolation have kind of degenerated into quasi-medieval isolationist societies, how do they get control? They can't fight these guys unless they find allies. And it reminded me of basically what we British did in India. You know, we mm. had less than a percentage of uh, the population of India. And yet we managed to... And, and remember as well, we didn't even invade India. We didn't send a military force in. We, you know, the, the way we... India became part of the British Empire was through a bunch of traders, the East India Company going in there and then hiring locals into a massive army that kept control of the population. Although I think we and did so, fight the French quite a lot in and around India to, uh, to take control. Yeah, but... So there was... there was, But, you I, know, I don't, the I don't Indian think we went there without was, any military kind of backup. But I take your point, well, though, that you're trying to make. Yeah, but I mean, the Indian army, I think, was almost... When we, when we decided, actually, no, it's going to be part of the empire, it's partly because we thought the Indian army that... That is to say, the East India Company's private army yeah. was 
uh, something that needed to be brought in under government control. And so you can see almost parallels here with the Zenithians and the Legion is mm. they come mm-hmm. to this place, they feel, well, they want to be protected, they want to influence this, they've got a real agenda to, you know, stamp their authority on the Third Horizon. They need local people to do it and they find a local army. Yeah. That's and a that's good point. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's I think it's a good uh it's a good parallel to make and particularly you know, would explain uh one the kind of very close ties between the legion and the consortium right from the start uh and two clearly explain that you know the, the legion is a first come uh it's a first come faction really even though they're counted as a Zenithian one. Yeah, but yeah, but also um, there's an interesting part, you know, the the whole relationship thing that I talked about, where you know, is is the relationship between the two of them as good as I think? Certainly, I have assumed as a GM, um, you know, I've just now that I'm playing the Legion much more prominently in the Spectral Corsa campaign, I've just had them pretty much as you know the military arm of the consortium without worrying whether or not there was any problem in that relationship. This idea of yours, the parallel with you know, Britain's behaviour in, in India, is adds to that tension in that relationship. Because actually, That's again, a, yes. you know, if, they've, if they've hired the locals that they then treat as kind of lesser than them and look down upon them and expect a kind of uh, servant-master relationship, then naturally enough, that's going to get a bit wearing after a while to Isn't the it? leadership of the region. Yeah. And of course, you know, the Legion um, after the Portal Wars um, may well have been dividing into groups of, of its own account and fighting each other. And that there may be old enmities still bubbling under. So you could imagine that there being a third agent, you know, maybe maybe um, the first horizon people, maybe second horizon people, um who 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 are maybe the emissaries themselves who might see that as a point of witness and uh, if you like weakness I should say not witness. <laughs> I was going to say the, I'm not quite sure what you mean by a point of witness, but current, you know I'll go you know, with the, it. You know, <laughs> uh, but you know li- like the like the Russians did within the Indian mutiny, they might they might be trying to sow seeds of dissent to uh, to 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 find points of friction between the Legion and the. Uh, and the um, consortium. And the consortium. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, and that brings up lots of lovely campaign or scenario ideas or possibilities for uh, you know how this might might go forward. And I think I'm certainly, having thought about it, I'm certainly going to try and introduce some of these nuances into the Spectral Corsair campaign. Um, maybe not immediately, but as the campaign rolls on a bit, I think having that kind of tension uh, will be a really good thing. And very interesting yeah. to play through. Cool. Cool. Shall we move on to another topic? I think we I've should. I've just noticed we've hit an hour on the recording. And we've still oh, no, that's cause, plenty that's of stuff you, to talk about. It's because you wouldn't shut up about player character generation. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to move you on a couple of times, but no. Yeah, I just had to keep going on. Anyway. <laughs> keep yes, going. Keep going. We've got a lot to talk about. It's a big topic. It is, um, it is a big topic, right. yes. So, uh, black I, sheep. Uh, black sheep would like to present a ship design that I've made, and in this recording, I tell you 
not just about the ship design, but kind of how I arrived at it. If there is a problem with the rich background of Coriolis, it is GM paralysis. Almost every paragraph is a really cool adventure seed, but we know that some paragraphs will be expanded upon in future publications. For example, take the emissaries. If you only ever read the core book, the emissaries would be a cool thing for your player characters to investigate, and over the course of the campaign, the GM and the players could create a marvellous history for the emissaries, unpack their motives and desires, and imagine a mutually satisfying reason for their mysterious appearance. And talking of appearances, the core book doesn't even reveal what they look like. I was imagining something like the Vorlon in Babylon 5. Until I read the Atlas Compendium, which reveals... Well, let's keep the mystery alive for your players and just say that they are, biologically at least, as human as the rest of us. And of course, we know that the upcoming first part of the Mercy of the Icons campaign is called Emissary Lost, so I imagine most English-speaking GMs are putting the emissaries to one side until that comes out. Not the Swedes, though. The Swedes are already enjoying that campaign. Mumble, mumble, gripe, moan. Then there is the Tauern incident. It's a big mystery. Dangerous enough for the Legion and the Order to work together and put aside their differences? Or are they? Fleets of ships going through the portal and very few are returning, but what is going on? I have plenty of ideas, but the last voyage of the Ghazali is coming out soon, and that includes a flashback to the very beginning of the Tauern incident. What if there's a really cool secret in that scenario that contradicts whatever I have already told the players? As it turns out, my players were curious about the Tauern incident, but demonstrated very little desire to investigate it. That didn't stop me thinking about it, though, and how I might give players a taste of the Tauern incident without giving them much opportunity to discover what was actually going on yet. I do have a pretty good idea about what the incident is, one which fits the arc my players are on, but it's not one I'd want to share this early in the campaign. And in the interim, given how infrequently we get to play, the voyage of the Ghazali might well present me with a really cool idea that blows mine out of the water. So, just in case my players were curious, I had an idea for a scenario about the De Baron Run race, where speed is of the essence, and the player characters are motivated not to linger. The race would take in the Tauron system, and that visit might well be the climax of the adventure, but the players would be too concerned about survival and reaching the next portal to worry about investigating the mystery. Around the same time that I was thinking about that possible adventure, David Reichgeld, who created the lovely floor pans for Samar's Hammam, shared a 3D modelled ship that he'd been working on and invited suggestions for what it might be. I knew exactly what it was. A black sheep, the perfect ship to compete in the De Baron run. And this is what I wrote. The shipyards of Darkos are known for practical armed freighters. But the biannual De Baron run race, which started decades ago as a simple bet between two shipmasters, 
has prompted the development of specialised Class 1 portal hoppers, in which pilots compete in their own single-class race while the freighters battle it out. They are often piloted by the skions of great trading families. These particular ships are the Black Sheep 2 model, fast and manoeuvrable. Since the Terran incident, the race has been postponed and portal hoppers like this have been mothballed. But it is said a rogue group of disgruntled pilots are retrofitting stealth tech to them and plan an illicit and dangerous revival of the race. There was no time for sleep during the DeBaron run, so the racing portal hoppers had a crew of two. The limited accommodation was taken up by two stasis holds for portal jumps, which meant the crews took turns sleeping in their cockpit seat or stretched out in one of the stasis beds. Facilities were inhumane, with pre-packed food, a very basic shared head and no washing facilities. Ground crews, charged with cleaning the ship out after races, were hardy folk with a very poor sense of smell. In happier days, occasional shots were taken at other competitors with a cheap autocannon, chosen because of its dreadful range and limited probability of life-threatening damage. Those preparing to take the run since the Tauron incident, fully aware that they know little or nothing of the dangers in that system, have pragmatically swapped out the cannon for a countermeasure dispenser, thinking that running away is a better option than fitting a bigger gun. So the standard model has four energy points, three hull points, a manoeuvrability of plus three, its signature is minus two, it has one point of armour and five points of speed. Its modules include cockpit, reactor, graviton projector, stasis hold times two and an autocannon. Its features are a turbo projector, a supercharged reactor and it has no extra gear. Its problem is unreliable sensors and it costs 195,000 burr. The retrofitted tower and model still has four energy points and three hull points and a manoeuvrability of plus three, but this time its signature is minus three. Of course, it still has one point of armour and five points of speed. The modules are the cockpit, the reactor, the graviton projector, stasis hold times two, of course, but this time a countermeasure dispenser. Its features are turbo projector, supercharged reactor and stealth technology. No extra gear still, and this time the problem is a slow accelerator. This one costs 205,000 burr. It's really interesting. I, I haven't touched the emissaries at all in my games. I've uh, kind of ignored them completely. And I think, um, uh, you know, your, your suggestion... I think most people have, to be honest. Yeah, I think your suggestion that, uh, you know, it might be because there is... The you know emissary lost campaign coming out. That's been a uh, you know it's been a uh, an anchor on wanting to to really explore the emissaries very much. But actually, even before that, I sort of read about the emissaries and thought I I didn't feel there was any immediate exciting stories that were leaping out at me around the emissaries, and there were so many other interesting and exciting stories elsewhere that. I just went straight with the other ideas and, and have left the emissaries completely. Um, and I think your, yeah. your your point about GM paralysis with Coriolis is uh, is is a good one. Only 
and and it might not be so much though GM paralysis. It's more of GM discarding huge chunks and not worrying about them of the background or the context uh, and the story of the yeah. Thing you're right. Actually, GM paralysis to focus, was the to wrong focus thing on to say, something much more manageable. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Uh, no, that, I think that's, that's true. Um, but, that, but that's a really good point. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I is this so? You know, we're talking here about um, the you know the Tawan situation and the Kessel run. I mean, the, sorry, the Dabaran run that you've mentioned. <laughs> um, you see what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I haven't seen Solo yet. Um, I don't know if you have, but uh, I, I have. And can I have a quick? Can we have a quick sidebar about Solo? Yeah, absolutely. Go on. I just want to say this about Solo. If there's anybody out there listening who hasn't seen Solo because because of what the Last Jedi was like, or uh, they don't like the sound of the robot in Solo. The robot in Solo is fabulous, by the way. Okay. Um, I didn't even know there if, was a if, robot if, in Solo. If if you're trying to avoid. Uh, the robot's played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And so it's, if you like, our first female robot. And she's hilarious. I love Phoebe Waller-Bridge anyway. But um, she's great in this. Um, And I will say, just go and see it. It's not, you know, Solo doesn't save the universe. It's not about that. It's It feels more like an episode of Firefly than anything else. And let's face it, Firefly was really good. So, that must yeah. be quite a recommendation then. Yeah. So I think for me, the I, reason I, I why... I fear it's not going to last long at the cinema, so no. go and see it quickly. Yeah, I mean, the reason why I haven't rushed off to go and see it, uh, two things really. One, I don't see Han Solo in the guy who's playing Han Solo from the trailers and stuff. Um, and I just, mm, that, that grates a little bit. That's a very and, fair point. Um, and secondly, I think that... You know, it's a film where you know that Han can't die, Chewie can't die, Lando can't die, and that, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Looking back at early Han is what I really I would have chosen for the next movie. Although having said that, I think um, from the just from the trailers, Danny Glover as a young Lando is perfect. He just looks absolutely like he's Billy. Billy Billy D Williams, uh, but younger. Yeah, I gotta um, say, Danny Glover is brilliant, and uh, I I do want I I'm uh, much of the opinion of you is what's the point about looking at the early lives of these characters? Their story started when their story started. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, as you say, there's no dramatic tension in that you know that they're going to survive. Um, uh, so yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be my first choice if I was a producer of the Star Wars franchise to say no. yeah, let's do Solo, and I entirely agree about the guy playing Solo who um, I can't even remember his name, which no, I which can't is in itself yeah. indicative. But and there was you know and there but for me there was a bit of a transformation in that this guy you don't really care about much becomes Han Solo through the film, and there's a key right. point which for me he became Han Solo, which is. Uh, no spoilers. I will, I, will go and, I will go and see it. At and some I don't point. want to spoil yeah. it. Uh, but it did. He he became Han Solo. He became a good enough Han Solo. Oh. He's not. Let me guess. Is that, is that the point where by he the gets end of the film of... he had me convinced he was Han Solo? Right. So uh, the iconic moment is that when he takes possession of the Millennium Falcon. I guess. No. Okay. Cool. 
Or is that you just saying no? Okay, fine. <laughs> um, but I'm going to go and see it. And I think any movie with Chewbacca in it is going to be worth seeing. So uh, I definitely yeah. want to see it for Chewie as well. But um, Yeah, they've got a different actor playing Chewbacca as well. Yeah. But he well, does they, a good job. Well, Peter Mayhew must be about... 70 or 80 now 80 surely. something surely yeah. yeah so fair enough i think you know uh yeah maybe maybe they should jump forward and do uh you know a story of chewbacca when he's a really old man and then you could have peter uh peter mayhew playing him again <laughs> you know yeah going yeah. a bit more, a bit <laughs> more slow well, a bit more we're gonna have to jump forward two three four hundred years aren't we yeah well that might not be a bad thing though but uh Anyway, there's some digression there. So, um, but well, um, I think I I think we might approve. There's not much to say about the ship that hasn't been said, unless you've got any <laughs> other comments you'd like to add. No, no, not really. I mean, it looks like a really cool little thing. I mean, I um for the Spectre Corsair, I designed a class one uh, ship called a Scimitar, which is effectively a torpedo fighter, which was chasing down the Spectre Corsair at the end of the first campaign. Um, so it's actually quite fun designing small class one ships. Maybe I'll I'll work that up and and tell everybody about that one next time round. Yeah, I think you should because uh, yeah, I I quite enjoyed the you know setting yourself the limits of what can you do with class one that isn't mm. just a you know glorified grav bike. So uh, so yeah, <laughs> I'd like to see that. Yeah, cool, excellent. And I guess that brings us on to the Spectral Corsair campaign. It does. So we're now into season two. Uh, of Spectral Corsair. The campaign has changed slightly. Um, you will all remember... Uh, I'm trying to think. How far did we get last time? Did I... I did finish... We did finish the the first campaign, didn't we? Yes. So they'd, they'd, they'd managed to escape from Odicon by going through the, the new portal. They'd ended up right on the other side of the horizon in Melek and because whilst they'd been uh, three months in portal space for that jump the legion had started war against Zalos and so because they were in a Zalos ship they were picked up by uh, a legion uh, a legion warship when they came out of the out of the portal and they were then convinced uh, largely with a, a an offer they couldn't refuse uh, to help the legion Effectively, as agents, and help the Legion win, uh, win the war against Zalos because none of them like the Order of the Pariah very much. Um, so this scenario, they uh, the war grinds on. Uh, Zalosian forces have been bottled up in in their own system, but the conflict itself has reached pretty much a military stalemate. The only place that the Zalosians can operate unhindered outside of Zalos is actually and on Coriolis itself. Um, through the Samaritan Sanatorium, which is the charitable institution largely run by the Order of the Pariah, um, which now remains active, still continuing its uh, its charitable works. But the Legion have tried to have it shut down, but the, the, the Coriolis Council have said, no, it's a charitable organisation, there's nothing, there's nothing going on here. So Hanbal and the crew were given um, their first mission by their legion handler, um, uh, Castellan Rahul. And she sent them to go to Coriolis to investigate 
um, the activities of the Zelosian people who are working, as she's saying, under the cover of this charitable organisation. And they were given a uh, given a contact who has been doing some work undercover already to go and meet a uh, a tobacco dealer called Sadida Tamin, and she would be able to give them the latest briefing on what she's learned, and they're then to take over the investigation. So they then return to uh, to Coriolis, and the way I the way I ran this because they were in Melik, they were on the far side of uh, of the horizon. I, 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 I fell to the temptation of hand waving the travel a little bit, so I had them placed in stasis uh, on board the Legion ship, and the Legion ship took them all the way to uh, the CAF system, which is one jump from Kua, and they were then left in orbit around the star, and then they were brought out of stasis. So they found themselves in CAF, waiting to uh, take up their mission and go up to Coriolis. <clears throat> and I think that was the right thing to do, because we've done a lot of uh, the 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 travelling, the, tra- the, the um, getting work to do all that. <laughs> but it's quite funny actually. The first thing they said when they came out of out of uh, out of stasis and realised where they were was was right. What jobs can we get to make some money for our jump to, to Coriolis? So <laughs> the you can they're well trained. T- you can't take the trader out of these guys. So, uh, but that was good. That was fine. So they got themselves a bit of work. Um, so they then went to Coriolis. Now Coriolis is is Coriolis. It's it's uh, it, it carries on despite the conflict that's ongoing. And as a multicultural location, you've got uh, you know the, the 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 people from Zalos, the people from the Order of the Pariah, going about their business largely unhindered. Um, on their way to Coriolis, they were obviously conscious that they hadn't spoken to Jubal, their patron, in quite a long time. Now, the Legion had kindly, very kindly, paid up three of their payments for the ship. But obviously, these payments were going to have been late uh, and they still owed another payment. So they were concerned about how, one, Jubal was going to react to their effective disappearance. But two, um, the news that they were going to bring him wasn't going to be the news that Jubal was after, uh, namely that they'd they they hadn't managed to get his brother back. Bressam had been killed, uh, and then his body, which they were trying to bring back, had been sucked into space when they'd left it in the cargo hold, and the cargo hold took a, a critical hit when they were escaping from the asteroid. So they had, they basically had no evidence, really, of of Resim because he was lost in deep space somewhere. Um, so they tried to get in touch with Jubal, but they got no they got no response. So anyway, they carried on with their job. They had a job to do. So they went and found uh, Tamin, and she gave them information on three suspects who were working from the sanatorium. One was called Sister Mariam, who was in charge of the lepers and the other untreatable people who were staying at the sanatorium. Um, and she travels down to the cellar every day, very frequently, in, in Coriolis. Ostensibly, to go and find people who need help and bring them back to the to the sanatorium. The second target was a man called Brother Asculum, who was a humanite from Zalos B, uh, the same kind of humanite as Osgar, so a good kind of like a reptilian could breathe underwater um, humanite, and he walks the ring on Coriolis, and he's helping homeless people 
and is seen there frequently and is well is very well known. And the third one was a uh, a, a man called Robot Alfaco. <laughs> Alfaco. I uh, I during the game I kind of thought, mm, is that is that is that a hint, an unconscious hint to what he's up to? Calling him Alfaco kind of seems a bit obvious. But anyway, um, he's not a missionary. He's a negotiator, and he travels up to the to the rich levels of the spire to negotiate on behalf of the sanatorium to make sure it doesn't get closed down. But before they could plan to go for any of these, they decided to have a little bit of R&R when some beautiful women approached them in the tobacco house. Now, kind of inevitably, these were agents for Jubal, and they uh, introduced a tobacco into their hookah that most of them just freely smoked, that paralysed them all. So they could speak to them about Jubal's disappointment and about the, uh, the the fact that Jubal was very displeased with them and the fact that Jubal was very upset that Resin was dead. And they gave them one opportunity to try and assuage Resin's um, anger at their failure to complete their mission, which was... They need to download and give to Resim all the research they had on the the portal that Resim had been conducting in Odicon. Now they don't have that readily to hand. Uh, I think they think they do, but the the Legion has taken control of that information, so they don't actually have it. Um, which I, th- I think maybe they don't know they don't have it. So when they listen to this, they'll <laughs> now know that. But we're playing next week, so it's kind of. Uh, you know, it's um, shouldn't be too big of a uh, of a of a disclosure. Not um, too much of a spoiler. No, no. So see how long we take with the editing. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Um, so they've given themselves a bit of a problem there, which I mean, they they, I think they feel a bit hard done by because they've actually tried to do everything in good faith. But it, none of it's worked out, and the roll of the dice meant that Resin was sucked out into space. So they're feeling a bit, you know, the, the icons are like shitting on them a little bit, they feel like. Um, but anyway, they decided to go and investigate um, Brother Asculum, being the easiest one to get to. They had a nice little plan where Osgar decided to pretend to be homeless, uh, and being a, a Zalos B humanite, they obviously immediately have something in common. So that that worked quite well, and they managed to follow Brother Asculum um, to a uh, to a tabac house, uh, a real dirty den uh, tabac house in the in the streets of of the Ring, where he was using Opor, and it turns out that he's a he's addicted to Opor, and he's genuinely trying to help people. They think so. They've made the assessment that he's genuinely trying to help people. He's not a agent or a spy. Uh, working for Zalos here. Um, and in their discussion with him and some very, very good manipulation roles, uh, they've managed to convince him that what they're trying to do in preventing Zalos from doing bad things and stopping the war is is something that Brother Asculum should support. So they now have managed to get themselves an agent inside the sanatorium in the form of this brother, Brother Asculum. Which was something I hadn't thought about at all when I was setting up the scenario, mm. but that that's, that's worked out really well for them. And good use of Osgar's mystic powers, his telepathy, and some very very good manipulation roles has has put them in a really good position. And that was where we had to 
draw the line on that last game. So, so their next target is going to be Sister Mariam. They want to go and see what she's up to. And that will be the start of the next scenario. Cool. So, yeah. So they have transformed themselves from traders into agents. They have, yes. And that's and been did quite... that happen as a as a conscious choice, or as a story taking them there, or did you pause the story and say, "Well, what are you now?" Because I think we're going to be having this discussion uh, next yeah. time we sit around a table and play. No, it was a bit what, more. How did you handle um, that? It, well, it, it was an evolution rather than a uh, a revolution, shall we say? So, as they reached the point where they were being given this ultimatum by the Legion, effectively, either mm-hmm. help us end the war. Or as Zelosians, because you're in a Zelos flagged ship, you're going to spend the war in a internment camp somewhere. And yeah, mm-hmm. they felt okay. We don't like Zelos very much anyway, so we're happy to co- cooperate with the Legion on that one thing. You know, they're not agents for the Legion generally, and that that became clear in the uh, the scenario before the last one, which I ran a little scenario with three of the guys on a effectively a test mission for the Legion, and it became really clear that they were not prepared to do the Legion's bidding unless it was directly relevant to ending the war against Zalos. And that was really good. Mm. That was a really good bit of play that uncovered a uh, you know the players' take on how they were seeing their group forming up now as agents under the Legion. So, But they did decide effectively that, yes, we, we are becoming agents now as a result of the circumstances that they were placed in. I've allowed them to change their group concepts, so their group talent, and they've taken mm-hmm. the friend in every port talent, which is a really which good one for role playing. I like that great one. Talent, yeah. Um, for, I'm not, for, not sure, just, not just for players, but for GMs. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm not sure I've made the right decision as the GM there, but we'll see how it plays out because they. I remember our conversation about this last time. The the idea that they've changed their group concept um, doesn't mean, though, that wipes out the history of their previous group concept. And so no. it doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean it wipes out the previous group talent. And I've allowed them to change it. I'm not sure that's the right decision, but we'll see how it plays. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Though. Uh, so, but what what the impression I got from what you just told me is the style of play has changed. It has changed from, if you like, a sort of Firefly esque muddling through and getting getting in deeper than I wanted to, to an investigation style of play. You know, they have become investigators. So yeah, in, yes. You know, and it's, it, as we talked about last time, you know, the choice you make as a group concept, I think does kind of inform the GM the sort of game you want to play and it appears that they they have done that and they're now playing a different sort of game. It doesn't wipe out of, the history of yeah, their Yeah, sort of yes and right. no, I think, though. Um, I think yes and no because the... I don't, I don't think that the actual look and feel of the game will change very much. Because in the in the first campaign, they had an overarching mission, which wasn't a trading mission, and they mm-hmm. traded their way to complete that mission. Uh, for this campaign, they're going to have an overarching mission, which isn't a trading mission, but they will probably trade their way across the horizon in trying to achieve that mission. So I think, <laughs> so I think it'll probably 
feel very similar, even though this particular scenario is very much a <clears throat> is very much an investigator style scenario, right. an espionage style scenario. Um, so I think it will change it a little bit, yes, because I think there will be smaller missions that they will, if it goes the way I'm sort of imagining it, there will be smaller missions that they will complete, which will take two or three scenarios each, probably. But then they'll have to trade their way to do them as part of an overarching sort of strategic mission, which will play out across the campaign. Okay, I think we'll that's see how. how that goes. Yeah, hopefully uh, Just one more question on that. Yeah. Um, how are you dealing with the, if you like, uh, core book canon that the Legion and the Zelossians appear... Obviously, we don't know much about the Tyran incident, but they appear to be cooperating in dealing with the Tyran incident. Has has that come up? Has that clashed with your nascent war? Uh, so your two questions there, the answers are no and no. So right, um, okay. I I, totally I guess if forgotten. it hasn't come up, it won't have clashed with the story. <laughs> no, I'd totally forgotten about the Tyran incident until it came up in your in your piece just then. Um, <laughs> I think in in my in my Coriolis universe, the the war has meant that in Tauan, any cooperation has ended, and I think the Legion have tried to wrap up uh, and destroy where they can't control the Zelosian ships that were still remaining in in Tauan. I could see actually a really good moment where um, the Zelosians don't realise. The, the Legion are about to go to war with them and the Legion have made some cooperative mission with the Zelosians and then turn their guns on the, on the Zalos ships. Mm. That'd be quite cool. But I think that's what's uh, happened yeah. in Tawan. Yeah. That could be fun. <laughs> okay. Uh, cool. I just want to say a little bit about, uh, I haven't got a campaign uh, log to give you, but I do just want to tell you a little bit about a really interesting conversation that I mentioned before. Uh, a couple of nights ago, we were halfway through the last session of our Dungeon Call Classics adventure that we'd been having uh, nice. when the GM had to take a phone call and um, uh, had to spend, I don't know, a good 20 minutes, half an hour, I think, away from the table. Yeah. And... Uh, one of my players, who uh, who, who uh, will be one of the players uh, when we start the Coriolis campaign, said, oh, you know, let's talk about our group concept. And I think I'd mentioned to you earlier and on this podcast that they had discussed um, some sort of inquisitor type thing. One of the mm-hmm. players, not, not, not Sophie, yeah. who'd brought the conversation up this time. Which Mellors had discussed. Which smellers? And you, you, yeah, you were quite keen on which smellers. <laughs> That's not where we've gone. Uh, oh. So one of the things, one of the things I go, yeah, we like inquisitors. We like, you know, we'd like to be the ultimate authority around the around the universe, uh, making the law. And I said, oh, well, you know, you might not be Zelosian then, because they have ultimate authority around Zalos. Yeah, but it's the Church of the Icons. You know, we could we could create. Yeah, I'm convinced that there's probably some Inquisition type thing in the church of the icons would be a bit more like um uh, probably be a bit more protestant i don't know but you know <laughs> we could do that um 
And then they went, oh, no, 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 we want, we want some fearsome ship. I said, oh, well, the Zolossians, you know, they, they paint battle scenes on the outside of their ship. Um, and uh, they went, oh, that's not fearsome enough. Well, I want, like, like <laughs> I want the ship to be made out of dead bodies. And I was going, well, that sounds like some sort of cadaver clot. But, you'd, you know, you, you'd, you'd have to be um, uh, the Nazarene sacrifice to do that. And they went, Ooh, ah. <laughs> I said, but the Nazarene Sacrifice is a legal organization that's totally wiped out by the Zlossians. And they went, but we could be secretly Nazarene Sacrifice missionaries undercover of the Church of the Icons or something <laughs> like that. I said, well, you can't so, have dead bodies on the outside of your ship. Yeah, but we could have, like, <laughs> no. a chapel on the inside of our ship with a with secret... dead bodies in like it. Like a... Like like a lever you turn down, it takes you to a secret door to the proper chapel, which is full of like these dead bodies. Excellent. And so that appears to be what we're doing. Um, they're going to be a kind of um, uh, Nazarene sacrifice, uh, secret mission, trying to pull together all the uh, last remnants of the Nazarene sacrifice and find their relics and find their cadaver clocks. Um, cool. That appears to be the concept we're working with. Excellent. I, like I thought you'd be That's really interested in that, partly yeah, because can... of the arc that your character's on. I was going to say, and can it kind has a berth on the ship? <laughs> yeah. You might need a new job. Uh, well, very possibly. Or, you, or maybe you could be their patron. Maybe yeah, we yeah. could put it a few years for... <laughs> But anyway, I thought we I ought to... I think that's a great idea. Point, yeah, go, go for that, yeah. Put it a few uh, years we ahead. We ought to bash our heads together. I know you've written a bit about Nazarene Sacrifice before, but yes. I'd like to just you know pull together everything you've been thinking about the Nazarene Sacrifice here. Because there's some, I think there's some great storytelling opportunities. Cool. Yeah. Well, I think everything that I everything I wrote on Nazarene Sacrifice is on uh, my blog rpggods.org. Cool. So you should be able to find it I there. Might but link if, them to that. Yeah. But if not, I mean, um, I'll, uh, I'll I'll root out some other stuff if I've got anything that I haven't published. But I think there should be stuff on there. I reckon. Cool. And uh, you know, I, I I mentioned as well that in the campaign. Uh, You'd stolen that book, the uh, soliloquy and sacrifice. Yes. Uh, the guys who played at Dragon Meat had decided that the best thing to do about it. I'm convinced this was the wrong decision, but they decided it. So I'm going to stick with it. Is to make copies of the book and distribute them around the first. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, they're doing my job for me. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, these cool. copies won't be written on human skin. They love the idea of <sighs> on human skin. By the way. Um, so. It's, it's going to be quite a sick and quite a dark adventure. Maybe Sounds not that it. long. We'll see how it goes. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, I think that's the yeah. thing with it. If you're playing a Nazarene sacrifice character, it's a bit like uh, my character in L5R, um, Moshi Azamuku, who, as a player, you know, is doing some bad stuff. But as a character, you don't really. Uh, well, I do now, don't I? <laughs> only because of Cooney's accusation, which I totally deny. Somebody's been I, accused of it. I did. I did think actually, what I should have done was challenge him to a duel for that insult. At that moment, yeah, yeah. Well, I shouldn't you know, have just. I think there's. I, I shouldn't yeah, have just acted as a second. Done. I should have. I should have challenged him to a duel because of the besmirching of my honour. But there's a really good tension because I thought, well, you know, what would what what do I do now? And I think what I'd do. You know me. My character would probably challenge you to a duel. Um. But of course, well, on, can't just challenge the, you to a joke. On the basis Sorry? of on the basis of Cooney's accusation, who's 
a self well, self-confessed Mayho user. If Cooney is is right, you've been lying to us for the whole adventure. But anyway, don't worry, it's not going to happen. He can't challenge you to a duel <laughs> for two reasons. One, um, you've already, you've he's already an got one man, duel to fight. You are a Shugenja, so you know he can't fight you. He can only fight a champion that you appoint. That's one reason. Uh, and, but the other reason, I hang, on, I would appoint you as my champion. Yeah, I'm sure you would. <laughs> yeah, well, you, we you just have to commit uh, Sabuku there and then. <laughs> but the other I thing win. I've done is I, I've just I've just written to my Diamo asking if I can challenge the Emerald Champion <laughs> yeah. to a duel, which I am surely going to lose. Therefore, yeah, well. I can't be D'Artagnan. I can't start going around challenging everybody <laughs> to a duel. So you yes. have got at least until the Emerald Champion situation is sorted um, to. Uh, uh, Prove my innocence. Uh, to to try and convince me that you have nothing to do with the matter. Although, I mean, you know, guilt, um, innocent to proven guilty, surely. Yeah, and an accusation from a <laughs> no, 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 no. Known, this is feudal from a Japan. known criminal. No, no. Well, when when I yeah. went down that when I went down that road with so my original plan with with Moshi was that I was desperately trying to resist uh, the influence of Meho and 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 you know it was about my inner battle to overcome my demons. Um, when we came yeah. across Cooney, when we came across Cooney, and I quite early on identified him as a Mayho user, I then thought, okay, I can learn some stuff from him. And then I thought, right, I'm going to become the emperor. This is me wanting to kind of take power. No, not the em- the emperor, as in Palpatine, not the emperor of Rockigan, because you know that that wouldn't be possible. But um, yes, so my <laughs> my 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 view changed. Um, but when I, when I, when my view changed, I realised that there was likely to be a moment where I'm going to be slaughtered, and it might be sooner rather than later. But it'll be fun getting there. <laughs> it will be fun. It will yeah. be fun. But yeah. I guess when we start talking about Legends of the Five Rings, it's time for us to say it probably is. to our yes. listeners. Yes. Um, uh, now I didn't give you the Legion as homework last time. You took that task on yourself. But have I did. you got some homework for me? I, well, I have. Well, you've been talking about the Church of the Icons, so I, I think All right. you should do us a little piece uh, looking more deeply into the Church of the Icons for next time. Okay, that's a deal. We'll do the Church Excellent. of the Icons next episode for our faction of the episode. Um, yes. and I'll, and I'll have we got anything and... else we want to say to our visitors, our visitors, our listeners? <laughs> and I'll just say that um, next time I will also pull up the stuff for the Scimitar Class 1 torpedo boat. And see uh, and talk about that a little bit, but otherwise, yes. no. Um, so I think uh, it's probably overdue to be goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from me. And may the icons bless your Nazarene sacrificing horrible, <laughs> nasty players. May the dancer bless your. May the beast. May the, the beast, beast dance. I don't know. It's the beast. Um, it's not the dancer. It's the beast. It is the, the beast. But the beast, the beast is an aspect of the dancer. May it, may yes, your sacrifices right. to the beast be beastly and horrible. And productive. I'm sure there's a reason for it. <laughs> uh, and I did say to these guys, these guys are the bad guys. And I said, yeah, but we don't think that. We think we're the good guys. So yeah, they're true. thoroughly bought it. Excellent. Um, I look forward to hearing more about the beastliness. Look, we haven't, yeah, and look, the theme music's cutting into us, so... (laughs) Bye! See you next time! Yeah, bye guys! 
You have been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Font Fabric. <laughs>